This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Well, hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's great as always to be here with you. And as always, it's brilliant to have Paul Bindig here with me. How are you, Paul? I'm great, David, and I'm excited because I can see you. That's right. So um, as those that are viewing this podcast would uh, notice, there's a few new things happening. So I I wanted to cover that briefly if I could. Um, So number one, we have moved to being a video podcast. For those that listen to us on normal podcasting routes, fear not. Uh, we, we will be continuing to release exactly the same audio podcast. We'll be doing both audio and video recording. So, you know, um, if you listen to uh, via iTunes or Stitcher or any of those great services, Spotify, you, you still can. Um, but we have moved to video. We, we've succumbed to the, the progress that, you know, a lot of podcasts are doing in video. I have no desire to ever be seen, Paul. I'm not sure about you, but uh, let's give it a go. Well, you know, us keyboard players in the main, we, we humbly sit in a dimly lit back corner of a stage. That's I know you right. do that and, and I do too in, in, in most of my bands. And so this is a little bit different for us, but yeah. we're, prepared to, we're prepared to put ourselves out there. If, if our faces look nothing like you imagined for the, for the worst, we, we apologise. Yeah, I, I do. I, I profusely apologise. And so, um, and the other key thing is we are going to be doing some slightly different episodes. So again, fear not, we'll still be doing um, interviews with prominent and, and less prominent keyboard players about their career. And we've got a couple of really exciting ones we're recording over the next couple of days. So please be reassured that um, that's not changing at all. Um, but we are going to do some extra episodes to cover off different issues. And um, the one that we're about to introduce in a second is, is one of those. So I just wanted you to know, you will hopefully see a little bit more regular content covering both interviews with keyboard players, but also, I said, some, some deeper, deeper exploration of, of issues that face cover band musicians. So I'm a, I'm a little bit excited by that. Um, and so on that, we thought we'd kick off with an in-depth exploration of prog rock because um, we, we mentioned it, uh, I think, in the interview, Paul, you and I aren't, you know, the world's experts on prog rock. Nope, we are not. <laughs> that sums it up. <laughs> keep it short. We, we so are not. Uh, and you'll hear, you'll hear in the interview um, <laughs> the level of our ignorance. But um, thank, thanks to uh, Matt Goodluck, who has joined us, and, and regular listeners will know Matt has joined us two prior times um, to, to our interview prog rock keyboard players. Uh, but we've actually had Matt on as a guest to just talk about his experience because it is quite extensive. So he'll, he'll talk about his you know, um, early years and, and getting into prog rock, so I, I won't preempt any of that. 
But um, at age 20, he did fly to the UK um, and, and ended up staying in Europe for seven years, uh, working with prog rock bands, and particularly English prog, prog rock bands, um, and then sort of moved into European work, um, became the go-to merch guys for a number of those prog bands, including sort of Arena, Threshold, Pendragon, IQ, uh, and would tour with them throughout Europe, which is you know, pretty damn cool as a 20-year-old. Um, and then he began working as an assistant for Clive Nolan's record label. And again, this regular listeners will know we've interviewed Clive um, previously on the show. Um, and the record label it was the one that Clive mentioned in his interview that he formed with ex-Marian drummer Mick Pointer. Um, and so um, it was a pioneer, pioneering business model somewhat at, at, at that mm. stage because it was early internet times um, and his role included sort of promotion, marketing, graphic design and booking tours for the band. So as you can imagine, seven years in Europe and he's done a lot more since that I won't go into now. This guy knows a little bit about prog rock, so that's why we called on him again, and we thank him profusely for that. Um, Paul, anything you wanted to add beyond it's it's a fun chat? Yeah, it, look, it is. Uh, I, I really uh, trust all our regular listeners will enjoy. It's a slightly different take because we're just going to dive right into that genre, and as you'll discover, Matt's knowledge of prog rock is encyclopedic, and we, we could have frankly talked to him for two, three hours mm. about the subject and he wouldn't have run out of interesting things that he could tell us about it. And as David will explain shortly, we also do have a little bit of bonus content for our uh, Patreon followers as well. Yes. Yeah, so um, for those that are supporting us on Patreon, and we do thank you very much, we, we do record some extra um, stuff with Matt that is quite entertaining. And it's basically where we throw how would you describe it, Paul? It's a bit of a mastermind session. We throw particular quotes at, at uh, Matt and get him to identify who they've come from. Um, so if you are a bit of a prog fan or want to learn more about prog, definitely consider um, joining us on, on Patreon You know, for, for basically a couple of bucks a month. There's going to be a lot more of this bonus content over the coming year and more. Mm. So without further ado, let's join uh, Matt for a bit of a discussion on prog rock. Matt, can't thank you enough for joining us. And it's a bit weird because you're on the other side of the microphone, so to speak, in that you've helped us out twice on the podcast before. Yeah, that's right, David. Yeah, it was a lot of fun doing those uh, couple of interviews and it's great to be back, uh, no. albeit in a different capacity this time. No, it's great to have you back. And, and obviously the reason we've got you back is your profuse knowledge of prog rock and that's what we've decided to talk about today so we'll try not to be too hard on on you and I think you're fairly safe given that uh, and sorry to speak for you Paul I think our knowledge of prog rock is quite limited <laughs> yeah um, I'm, I'm, I'm far from an expert on it which well, is why I'm really anything then it's right well, well, <laughs> well this is the beauty of this this and why David and I decided to do this for the benefit of all of our listeners and our viewers is because prog is, is such a deep and an interesting subject and the music is so cool and so complex. And we thought, well, we could learn a lot more and we feel like maybe a lot of our listeners would, would love to learn a bit more about it as well. And I think for the the listeners who are quite advanced in your knowledge of prog rock, there'll, there'll still be some pretty cool bits and pieces in this for you because uh, Matt, as we outlined in the intro, has an encyclopedic knowledge of this genre. So I can't wait, David. Yeah, no pressure, Matt, no pressure. <laughs> I know. I'm like I'm on an episode of Mastermind now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so you, I, we might as well start off with a basic question, which is probably a selfish one for Paul and I as much as, as anything. Is how, If you had to define prog rock to a layperson, how would you actually define it? Well, I guess that's a good question. And, and it's the never-ending debate that goes on in prog circles. What is prog? You often see uh, uh, different articles about, is this band prog or is that band prog? And, and you know, then it will... Uh, go on to an endless debate about uh, you know the merits or not um, I guess the easiest way to explain it is to give you a little bit of history about how prog came about and so we have to cast our minds all the way back to the 1960s for that um, so back at that time sort of mid 60s uh, mid to late 60s bands were really just playing they were used to playing simple music that was three or four chords boy meets girl um, thrown onto the singles charts and, and quite often they were never heard of again. Um, but musicians sort of got bored with that format basically and they wanted to branch out. So one of the first things that started Prog was taking on board lots of different genres and, and mixing them all up in, in one big soup, if you like. Now, to say that now, it doesn't sound like such a big thing, but back in the late 60s, it was a massive deal. And um, it was almost considered shocking to mix up jazz, blues, folk, uh, even classical um, influences in, in one song. And uh, people thought, this is really weird, but we're not used to this. Um, but musicians became less concerned with having chart success and they wanted, to, they wanted some self-fulfillment out of their music. So that's how this sort of came to be. The other couple of key elements that gave rise to prog was 1966, 1967, you had three key albums that were released that changed the musical landscape completely. So you had Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys and Freak Out by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, both in 1966. 1967, Beatles released Sgt. Pepper. And people were just blown away by these three albums because they were a lot more experimental. They were incorporating lots of these different genres within the music. And they were albums that rather than just putting on to listen to one or two singles, they were albums that were intended for you to sit down and listen to the whole thing from start to finish. And that was such a really big change in the musical landscape. And really that sort of gave rise to this thing called prog rock. It wasn't known as prog rock back then, but it was, I guess it was an experimental form of music that had evolved from pop and psychedelic music. So that was really how it came to be um, through that. People say about those three albums in particular that they were three of the first examples of bands and producers using the studio as, as an extra instrument, almost being able to use that to create differentiation in the sound as well as just, you know, a guitar, drums and bass, but the actual studio technology. W would you agree with that? Yeah, certainly. Um, although uh, the studio was still very much in its infancy back in those days. And I think if you listen to interviews with the Beatles, for example, they said, you know, being in the studio was still very much a case of guys walking around in white lab coats. And um, the musician was sort of, you know, wrapped on the knuckles for trying to have any kind of input into that, that whole process. But because the Beatles had become hugely popular and were, were massive, they started to get a little bit more uh, leeway in the studio and they were, they were starting to be allowed to put their hands on the desk and, and make, you know, mess around with it a little bit. And what does this do? And what happens if we play this backwards? And, 
what happens if we get distortion here if we push all the faders up and that sort of thing so yeah you, you're totally correct it it was eventually used as another instrument and and uh, mm. with the beatles for example who had stopped touring um they really dove uh, dived headlong into this uh, ability to um use all these different elements at their disposal to uh, embellish their sound so matt you were you were sort of saying those three you know the the, the beach boys frank zappa and the beatles were with, with their experimentation were like the the I guess the, the earliest form of where prog came from. Who, who would you say though were the, the first actual proponents of what we would now know as prog rock? Okay, so fast forward a couple of years to 1969 and you had Genesis, Yes and King Crimson all releasing debut albums. So that was a really heady time. You had all these different bands that were, were forming at the time and those three in particular are part of uh, what's what became known as the big six in, in progressive rock music. And uh, while those debut albums by both Yes and Genesis were very, very different to what they evolved into, King Crimson probably released what many consider to be um, one of the first prog albums as such. Sure, there were different things that came before it, but that really um, was what big fans of the genre really referred to as the, the sort of debut of prog, uh, which was called In the Court of the Crimson King. And I'm probably talking a little bit down the track um, in this uh, chat, Matt, but are, are there different branches of prog rock? Like I'm guessing like a lot of music, whether the UK versus US sort of proponents? Yeah. So um, if you have a look online, uh, there's a website called Prog Archives and they list about over 20 different subgenres of uh, progressive rock so you've got things like uh, symphonic rock and art rock and progressive metal and all of these different offshoots um, which you know prog being the umbrella term for all of that um, but back in those early days certainly there was there was a lot less of uh, that diversity um, but you know having spoken about three of those key bands genesis yes and, and king crimson while they were all considered to be prog rock bands they were all completely different to one another. They didn't sound anything like one another. So I guess then you can ask the question, so what defines prog rock? And, and that's, again, the, the eternal question. Um, I think it comes down to more the ideals and the thinking behind the approach to the music. Yeah, great. And what, what got you into prog rock um, yourself? Well, when I was about 12 years old, I my world was opening up and I... Um, started discovering music that was not just on the radio. And uh, I think it came down to a girl in the class that was interested in heavy metal. And all of a sudden I was interested in heavy metal. So I started out with a lot of the eighties heavy metal that was around at the time. And uh, a mate of mine had a cousin that had a massive collection of music. And uh, I remember being at his house one night and uh, I said to him, who's this band Rush? You've got heaps of their uh, albums. And he said, well, you need to listen to Rush. And that really changed everything for me because the album was 2112, um, their album from 1976. And I'd never heard anything like it. Um, for a start, it was really heavy uh, from anything else that I'd been used to. I'd only been listening to 80s stuff at that point. And here's this guy kind of screaming and listening to the album. It was The music was very complex and I could tell that I didn't know for sure, but it, it seemed like there was a story running through the 
the album as well, at least the first half of it. And that just really captured me and, and reeled me in. And um, from there, that was like, well, okay, well, what else is like this kind of music? I still loved the heavier stuff, but my mind had sort of shifted over into this other kind of music now. Well, what's this music that's kind of complex and weird and kind of underground? Nobody really likes it and, and, and that. So I started borrowing albums from the local library. And I was lucky because I had a couple of mates who had older cousins that sort of influenced them and, okay. you know. And um, just to establish, again, sorry, to speak for you, Paul, to establish Paul's and my credentials as some of the most useless prog rock um, uh, knowledgeable people on earth, I, that T-shirt you're wearing, that is the 2112 album cover, yeah? Well, it had the, the famous Starman logo on, on the 2112 yeah, album, yeah. yeah. That's right. Uh, but just to establish our credentials, I know I don't know about you, Paul, but my introduction to Rush really was after Ready Player One, the book that I read. And obviously a lot of it is based on Rush's 2112 as far as there are clues. For those that haven't read Ready Player One, I won't go into it now. Great book. It was the, yeah, a great book. And that was the first time I actually listened to the album. That's how sad, <laughs> sad my credentials are. What about you, Paul? Did you, you come across 2112 before then? No. You know how I was introduced to Rush meeting Matt? <laughs> uh, true story so I, I think fans of rush and maybe a lot of north american people would would be horrified at what a tiny 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 almost non-existent impact rush made in australia in in terms of like mainstream rock fans it just really wasn't that well known and that's not to say they were unheard of and they were certainly loved passionately by by many aussies but they would tend to be people who are like matt a bit more clued into that whole scene so yeah i i was really i came really late to it and probably like matt mind blown when i heard it it's like wow these guys are really cool and you know we're going to talk about um rush a little bit later in the uh, in the bonus content part of our podcast but yeah certainly certainly yeah i came to it very late so this is um yeah it's 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 interesting to hear how early you came to it matt yeah and and like i said it really was something totally different and certainly while all the other kids in the class at the time, and I'm sort of scratching Rush onto the school desks, people are going, who's Rush? You know, nobody knew who they were. And, um, you know, like you say, Paul, there, there is a small pocket of fans here in Australia, but you have to remember Rush never got any airplay on the radio here. Mm. Uh, they never toured here. Mm -hmm. So, that, you know, various bands just slipped through the cracks in certain territories, I guess, and Rush were one of them here in Australia. Um, so unfortunate, but the you know you had to you had to work hard to dig out some of these uh, great bands. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Now we're we're obviously where this is a a keyboard podcast here, not just a prog rock podcast. So my next question, Matt, is it seems to me that the keyboard is really integral to the overall sound of of prog rock. Why is that? Well, going back to what I was talking about earlier about the formation of prog, I think that started to occur at a time where there were major developments happening in the whole keyboard world. Um, new synthesizers were coming out at that time. And, you know, these musicians were just soaking up all this new technology and, and wanting to experiment with it and use it in their music. So, um, you know, I guess it was just fortuitous in terms of the timing. Um, so as that technology was developing, so was this genre and, uh, you know, a lot of the musicians in prog are often known as being um, uh, well, possibly virtuoso musicians. So there was a lot of attention 
put on being able to play your instrument really well. Mm-hmm. And uh, you had people like Keith Emerson, Rick Wakeman, John Lord from Deep Purple. These were all amazing players um, that, you know, were virtuosos. And so, um, you know, there was very much a, a focus on the keyboard and it wasn't just about the guitar anymore. You know, suddenly the guitar had uh, someone that, that they had to share space with. And, uh, and that wasn't easy early on because I think, you know, you guys will probably know some of those early keyboard instruments had to really fight to get some uh, audio space mm. alongside the guitar because the guitar was so loud, it would blow your head off. Um, but with the invention of things like the mini Moog and, and things like that, all of a sudden there was an instrument that could cut through and, and compete very well with the guitar. So um, that gave the keyboard equal billing, if you like. And prog was the perfect ground to, to really open that up and experiment with. Which is a nice segue, Matt. One of the questions I definitely wanted to ask you was, what are the keyboard sounds most associated, particularly with early prog rock, but probably since then? And you've, you've already alluded to one of them, which is obviously Moog, but you know, particular sounds that really stand out? Look, rather than sounds, I'll probably talk about instruments. And I think there's probably three key keyboard instruments in prog that had a massive effect and were showcased quite heavily on some of those classic albums. The first one I'll probably mention would be the Hammond organ. I mean, that wasn't just uh, key to prog. That was in all kinds of rock music at that time, Um, but certainly with prog. And you had everyone from Pink Floyd, Yes, Genesis, ELP, uh, Deep Purple, as I mentioned earlier, who were early on billed as a progressive rock band um, with those first few albums that they did. Um, it was a key instrument. So that was sort of your bedrock, I suppose. Um, the other one, which we've mentioned before, was the Moog systems developed by Robert Moog. Um, in particular, the Moog modular system, which was this enormous piece of furniture that you had to, you know, it, it was sometimes more expensive than owning a house to, to buy one in those early days. Mm-hmm. And it was early on, it was developed by people like um, Wendy Carlos, who, who used it as a format for exploring classical music. And then later, um, Keith Emerson, obviously he became the poster boy for, uh, for Moog. Uh, but even bands like Tangerine Dream uh, featured the, those big modular systems on their early albums as a way that they could experiment and get all these different crazy sounds. Because you have to remember that those early modular systems were used a lot in film production uh, on soundtracks for science fiction movies and things like that. So here are all these spacey, crazy, whacked out sounds that bands were saying, hang on a minute, we can actually put this into our music and look at all the other, other sounds that we can add to this. Um, the last one that I'll mention, and it's probably an obvious one if you, you're into prog rock, is the Mellotron. And it's almost become a, a bit of a, a symbol, a bit of a, um, a satirical symbol for prog rock as well, because uh, the more Mellotrons, the better. And for those that don't know, you know, the Mellotron was almost one of the very first samplers. Um, it was this sort of archaic box that uh, had a keyboard bed on it and, and used um, reels of, of tape. It was kind of like uh, when you pressed a, a key on the, the Mellotron, it was like pressing play on a cassette tape. And you could get all different sounds that you could put in there. So you could have choirs, you could have violins, cellos, all sorts. And that kind of allowed bands, well, it allowed the keyboard player to essentially bring in the whole sound of an orchestra into a band. Um, so that was another really key uh, moment. Uh, 
later on in the in the um, late 70s and 80s you had things like the Fairlight which was favored by people like Peter Gabriel and Kate Bush and the Synclavier which was used a lot by Frank Zappa so they were all sort of important to progressive music but sort of in the early days those three instruments I would say were probably the the key to to prog what um what David and I are going to do now is we're going to throw a, a couple of really influential, well-known progressive rock keyboard player names at you. And what we'd love you to do, Matt, is can you, once we've given you the name, can you then perhaps refer to a, maybe a particular a track or a particular album that our, our listeners could listen to to really acquaint themselves with the style of that keyboard player. And it might be something that's uh, quite introductory or maybe something fairly advanced that maybe not many have heard. So I'm going to start you off with Rick Wakeman. Right. Well, Rick is probably um, one of the most well-known keyboard players in prog. Um, but before he came to being a prog player, he uh, he originally started out attending the Royal College of Music and wanted to be a classical pianist, um, but decided there was more money to be had in being a session musician. So he, he ditched the college and, and started doing sessions right. with people like David Bowie and Cat Stevens, Black Sabbath. But it was when he joined Yes that everything totally changed. And for him and for, for Yes, he sort of catapulted them into becoming right at the top of the, the, the prog world. And uh, his virtuoso playing coupled with all the other guys in the band, it was a perfect match. So if I was going to recommend some music that uh, people should listen to by Rick Wakeman, there's a couple of yes tracks I'd recommend, which is Heart of the Sunrise from the Fragile album, which uh, was the first album that Rick joined on, uh, 1971. And then uh, the song Close to the Edge from the, the album of the same name in 1972, I think it was. Um, that was actually the band's attempt at writing a symphony. So, you know, it's a 20 odd minute long piece of music, um, which, you know, going back then, like we were saying before about mixing genres, doing a song that went for 20 odd minutes was unheard of, you know, and it was, um, it was a crazy idea, but it worked. <laughs> and uh, have a listen to it. There's so much going on in that song that it requires repeated listens to, to really get the gist of it. At the same time as exploding uh, in popularity with Yes, Rick Wakeman was also releasing a bunch of solo albums. So he had his first solo album, uh, I think, was uh, The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Listen to the first track, Catherine of Aragon. It's a great display of his work there. And uh, one of his later albums, The Myths and Legends of King Arthur, which he famously um, uh, did a, a big, massive live stage show on ice. <laughs> <laughs> we had knights riding around on ice with uh, jousting and, and whatnot. Um, Merlin the Magician is just a crazy song and, and a crazy uh, example of his dexterity and his ability to incorporate all these different uh, elements into his playing. Nice. Yeah, nice recommendations. We'll definitely link to those two in the, in the show notes. Um, to go from a guy that, you know, is very underplayed, Rick Wakeman, you know, doesn't wear any extravagant clothes or costumes or anything like that, to, to a totally out there guy that, you know, you just, he, he gets in your face, Tony Banks. <laughs> well, Tony's probably one of my favourite keyboard players. I, I'm a huge Genesis fan and I love everything that he brought to Genesis. And I think he, he kind of brought a, a real symphonic sound to Genesis, particularly with his use of the Mellotron and, and things like that. Um, and he was 
responsible for write, helping to write a lot of the band's classic epic songs. So um, Tony's a, an amazing player, but he's not quite as flashy as people like Rick Wakeman. Um, so he maybe doesn't get the same praise that, that someone like he, uh, he did. I would recommend listening to, um, which is probably the mother of all prog songs. It really is the song that defines progressive rock and it's called Supper's Ready which again is another 20 odd minute uh, epic that takes up the whole side of uh, side two of uh, the Genesis album Foxtrot from 1972. Um, the album Selling England by the Pound had Firth of Fifth on it, which is yeah. probably the Tony Banks song that you want to listen to. Um, mm -hmm. Cinema Show is another one from that album that's, that's fantastic. Um, I'll probably pick a later one as well for, for Tony just to show how he developed later on. And that would be Home by the Sea from the uh, self-titled Genesis album. Amazing song. Yeah, so, so not what I would suggest, something like We Can't Dance or I Can't Dance, <laughs> not, not stuff like that. Okay. Um, yeah, maybe not. That, uh, that song tends to make prog fans cringe. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to say, I mean, I've, I have watched actually a few videos of their current tour of the US and they obviously still have it. Obviously, Phil is struggling yeah. big time. But as far as, you know, Tony and the rest of the band, they're, they're still nailing the hell out of it. Oh, they're right on. And yeah. the footage looks amazing. What a show. Yeah. Yeah, those, um, those, those big, more modern um, reactivations of some of those stadium shows are absolutely brilliant to, to behold. And I guess with the benefit of the modern visuals and technology. I was just thinking before, Matt, when you were saying, though, speaking of visuals, when you were talking about Rick and, you know, not skating around on ice, um, you know, who said progressive music was excessive in its display? You know? <laughs> well, I heard a quote a little while ago. It said, uh, ambitious music uh, demanded ambitious presentation. And I think that's, that's right on the money there. Um, you know, yeah. from the stage shows to the album designs and packaging and everything that went with it, the big gatefold sleeves and, and yes. uh, fantasy elements and uh, designs, it, it was a perfect grounds for, uh, for, for going as far as you could and being self-indulgent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And speaking of players from bands with groundbreaking visual presentation, Richard Wright. Richard Wright is an interesting one. Um, I don't think he's always listed at the top of the list of, of classic prog keyboard players, but he certainly is one of them. I think he's quite underrated mm. in a lot of ways and he's probably underrated in his own band to be fair and i think the reason for that is probably because look keyboards were essential to pink floyd's sound but pink floyd was still very much a guitar driven band and when you had someone like david gilmore fronting the, the band up front and center you know you tended to sort of forget about the keyboards a little bit but they were still so important and i think where richard wright came into his own was knowing what to play in support of the song and so many times his playing really just holds it all together. And without that, it, they would have been such a different band. So if I was going to recommend some uh, Richard Wright material for, for people to listen to, to really um, get a sense of his playing, um, Great Gig in the Sky from Dark Side of the Moon, uh, which he wrote. Um, and also Us and Them is, a, is another one. It's a beautiful song. Um, in the more proggier uh, sort of end of the spectrum of what he did. Uh, Shine on You Crazy Diamond, part six to nine, which is the, the second half at, on the tail end of that album. Um, mm -hmm. What an amazing display of his synth work on, on that, uh, that piece. Uh, and I'd also say Echoes mm -hmm. from the metal album. 
Yeah, that, that sound at the start of Echoes where he's run a, a piano through a, a Leslie speaker, which is normally yeah. used for, for Hammond organs. It's just a, it's a, such an iconic sound. And as, as soon as you hear it, you know where it's from. Yeah. And what a unique yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. An amazing idea. And just showed you how experimental Pink Floyd were in their, in their thinking. I, I was reflecting on what you said earlier about Rick Wakeman having that real classical pianist background. And Richard Wright actually came from a, from a jazz background, mm. as I think a lot of our listeners will know. And I wonder if that also informed the way their bands ended up sounding to, to some extent. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And, uh, you know, a lot of those uh, players in those early days did come from either classically trained backgrounds or um, the, the jazz influence. Uh, and, and, you know, that comes back as well to what we were talking about earlier about bringing in all these different uh, elements, all these different genres and, and mixing them all up into the pot. Yep, nice. And so I think we mentioned we'd do four. We, we need to, to end with what I'd argue is the king, even from my ignorant background, and that's Keith Emerson. <laughs> yeah, there's no uh, list of greatest keyboard players complete without mentioning Keith Emerson. Um, he Look, he was probably one of the first notable virtuoso players on the scene, and this was when he was a member of the NICE. Um, uh, he famously went on to form the world's first ever supergroup, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, who uh, were known for being described by uh, famous DJ John Peel as being a waste of electricity. <laughs> um, he, he was just, he was a prodigy. He, he was an amazing player who brought in so many uh, different influences from jazz to honky tonk to classical. And, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer were well known for their classical adaptations of famous pieces of music. Um, he was an earlier adopter of, of the Moog systems like we were talking about earlier. Um, we talked a bit about Rick Wakeman's stage presence and, and, you know, you mentioned before David about uh, he didn't wear any particular costumes or anything like that. Obviously we all know he loved to wear a cape in those early days. Emerson was no slouch in the uh, flamboyance of being on stage either. And he used to have a little bit of a trick that uh, I don't know if you guys know about back in the early days, he found out that in order to sustain some of the notes on his Hammond organ, he'd have to wedge something in between the keys to hold them down, which he started doing with a screwdriver, I think. And his roadie, believe it or not, was Lemmy from Motorhead. That's right. And Lemmy said, well, you should use a knife. And if you're going to use a knife, use a proper knife. Lemmy was well known for collecting Third Reich memorabilia. And so he gave Keith Emerson these Third Reich daggers, which became a real showstopper. And he'd sort of plunge them into the keys of his poor Hammond organ and pull the Hammond organ over the, on the top, on top of him and roll around with it on stage. He was kind of like the Jimi Hendrix of, of keyboards, really. Um, he also on the works tour in, I think 1977 played a, a piano solo on a grand piano, which levitated and then spun around. <laughs> so um, yes. Not outrageous or, yeah, so, uh, or over so, the top at all. So Tommy Lee from Motley Crue had nothing. He was just ripping nah. off Keith, Keith Emerson. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Now, if we had to pick some some classic tracks for Keith Emerson, um, you've got to go with Tarkus, uh, the, the title track from, from that album, which is just the first time I heard it, I'd never heard anything like that. What's going on with the keyboards on that song is just, it, it blew my mind. Um, the band's album, Brain Salad Surgery, features uh, his adaptation of a classical piece called Toccata by um, a composer called Alberto Ginastera. I think he was a, an Italian composer. And uh, that, that's well worth listening to for how ELP would adapt 
classical pieces to the rock format. Um, Carnival number no. nine is also a, a, an amazing display of work uh, on that album. And most listeners will probably, even if they're not familiar with Emerson, Lake and Palmer, they'll know Fanfare for the Common Man, which uh, I think used to be on Wide World of Sports when it I was a was. kid. It was. Yeah. It was. Yeah, all Australians know that playing. song. Sorry? Yeah. All Australians know that song. I think they had that at the start of the Channel 7 Sports World or something yes, like that back in the 1980s. Right. Yeah. And it had, it had them famously playing in an empty Olympic stadium in Montreal with all snow everywhere. And uh, yes, so definitely check out those tracks. They're uh, amazing representation of, uh, of Keith's work. Unfortunately, as you may know, um, Keith took his life uh, mm -hmm. a few years back now. Uh, yeah. He faced a lot of issues with his ability to play. And uh, I think that that had a real effect on him, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah very sad. sad. Yeah. Mm. Um, and Matt, we talked at the very start about the, you know, the, the genesis of prog rock. And I mentioned briefly about UK versus US. Uh, as things evolved over the years, did, were there particular styles that developed within prog rock, you know, whether it's across the Atlantic or elsewhere? Um, I think when you talk about American prog, um, the thing to, to note there is, Aside from those early albums that I mentioned by Beach Boys and Frank Zappa, and you could even bring in the very first Doors album and things like that, they certainly um, uh, weren't afraid to experiment. But prog wasn't really um, the big thing in with American bands that it was with English bands. Although, having said that, the Americans were very quick to embrace prog. Uh, so all of those classic bands that went over to tour in America they became massive in America and often before they became massive in the UK or parts of Europe. So um, Americans certainly loved the music. They loved the format of it, but they weren't quick to um, uh, make their own stamp on that particular genre. They started to do that a little bit later on in the mid seventies where you had bands like Kansas and, and Sticks and, and Star Castle, bands like that who were kind of emulating some of those sounds that bands like Genesis and Yes were, were making. But the Americans tended to um, fuse that with their own more sort of melodic pop styling. Uh, so they were using elements of prog, but they, were, they weren't sort of going the whole hog and they were, they were still sort of balancing that out with traditional song structures. Yeah, really interesting. Um... I mean, and I suppose it, it, it follows in parallel with, you know, pop and rock music more broadly. There were certainly different styles developed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, I, I even think, as you just said, David, I remember as a kid growing up, what was on the top 40 chart, you could always, you could always pick an American song and a British song. They always had a quite different feel to them, even though it was all popular pop music. And I guess prog's the same, yeah, cultural influences. Right. Yeah, and, mm. you know, having said that, you know, we don't just stop at America either. There was lots of other countries that were embracing prog and doing lots of things with it. So Germany is a classic example. Early in the 70s, the, the German artists were really trying to rebel against the American sound of music that they had been brought up with and, and had come to know. And so they were hell-bent on, on being very experimental for the sake of getting away from this traditional sound. And, uh, you know, bands like Tangerine Dream, uh, Craftwork, Can, all of those bands, again, like the prog bands we mentioned, very, very different acts, but they all brought in this uh, sense of experimentation. I think that's probably the key part of, of prog is, is experimentation and, 
not being confined to the boundaries that are expected of you in songwriting. Um, the Italians were another country. So Italy really took to progressive rock. So bands like Genesis and Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Van de Graaff Generator, they were all sitting in the top of the charts in Italy when those albums came out. They right. just, for some reason, they loved it. And they started up their own um, uh, sort of subgenre, which is uh, the, the Italian progressive rock uh, field. So you had bands like PFM, um, uh, who else? They were the, probably the most well-known uh, export. They were signed to Emerson, Lake and Palmer's label in the 70s. Um, but many, many more. I mean, just off the top of my head, I'm, I'm just trying to think now. You had bands like Il Belletto di Bronzo, uh, Goblin, um, many, many more, which just escaped me at the moment. But the Italians absolutely loved it. In Greece, you had uh, Socrates, you had uh, Vangelis, uh, Aphrodite's Child, which Vangelis was, was a part of. Um, mm. So every country had their own prog bands and they were all slightly different. Obviously, the European bands had that European edge to their sound. It was a more of a romantic uh, blend of, of the music. And, uh, um, you know, the fantasy was a very big inspiration for those bands as well. Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting thinking about the, the, the way it's evolved in, in different parts of the world. And, you know, the word progressive, what does it mean? It means to progress, to move ahead, to evolve, to change. And so it's probably appropriate that we ask you about where is progressive rock now? because whilst it's perhaps not as huge as it was in the 70s, I know it's still very, very popular and there are a lot of bands out there. And I think for the benefit of uh, our listeners, and as, as David has mentioned a couple of times, uh, also he and I, who are far from experts on this genre, who, who would you say are the most prominent bands or maybe the most exciting bands in progressive rock these days, Matt? Well, I think in the last 20-odd years, that we've seen a real explosion in the progressive scene. And I think part of that is to do with the internet. It's really opened the world up in so many ways, but certainly within music. And around, well, yeah, sort of late 90s, you had a lot of really big kind of mainstream style bands that were openly admitting their love of prog rock. And it was something that a lot of bands hadn't been brave enough to admit earlier. But you had bands like Radiohead, Tool, uh, Muse, the Mars Volta, for example. They were all bands that maybe were on the fringes of alternative music that were starting to become really, really popular. But they were openly admitting that they were massive Pink Floyd fans or they were massive mm -hmm. Genesis fans. And so they were starting to incorporate some of these elements into their own music. And I think that opened up uh, a, a younger audience to want to investigate what this music was so where did these bands get their influences from and then you had heavier bands like dream theater for example and opeth and they were also sort of on the prog bandwagon saying yeah we love rush and we love yes and, and king crimson and all these bands so i think that was really important in uh, exposing younger people to what prog is and as a result it's becoming a lot more popular nowadays not quite as much as it was in the 70s, admittedly, but um, certainly people are a lot more open-minded to that kind of music now. And so there's a whole range of bands out there. Um, I used to work for a record label in Europe that was known as the premier progressive rock label. And that brought about lots of bands like uh, Frost, Haken, um, you know, Riverside. Now we're working with, uh, there's bands like The Pineapple Thief. Um, some of these bands, they're very, very different from one another. Big, big train, for example. 
um, you know, they, ha they have elements to their sound that are reminiscent of the classic bands. Big Big Train, for example, have that classic Genesis feel to some of their music. Doesn't mean that they're a Genesis clone. They've got their own sound, but they hark back to that classic sound. Yep. And so many of these bands are doing that. So they're incorporating those, those elements of prog into their own sound and creating something new, which is amazing. And uh, I think there's, there's a lot more room left for for prog to keep expanding and moving forward yet yeah thank you and, and look fantastic info there for any of our listeners or viewers who might want to check out some some of those bands and as david has said we always pop the links and information uh in when we publish the podcast now you mentioned your time in europe matt and we also did a little bit of justice to that when we introduced you at the start of the show a question that we ask all our guests who are up until now have, have been touring keyboard players is can you share with us a, a disaster or a horror story or a train wreck from your time playing live? So we'd like to flip that question a little bit for you, Matt. And can you tell us a, a good story or an anecdote from your time working with prog bands in Europe? Sure. Well, look, my time in Europe, I was incredibly lucky to meet so many amazing musicians, not just keyboard players, but amazing musicians that, you know, I'd grown up being a fan of. Um, when I was younger, I used to write letters to some of these guys in, in some of these bands. And, uh, you know, I found myself over there touring with some of these bands and calling some of these people friends. So I was incredibly lucky and, you know, bumping into various people, you know, I won't turn this into a name dropping exercise, but it, it was just, it blew me away because coming from Australia, you know, we never got to see a lot of these these artists here and uh, so I sort of put myself right in the thick of it and I was working in the progressive rock scene over there so I was incredibly lucky and fortunate but I guess if I had to come up with a story that um, it's the story that I'm probably most well known for <laughs> amongst uh, friends it's the time I encountered um, Robert Fripp <laughs> I was going to say, laughing, I've heard this David. Much. Yeah, no, you... this is well and truly worth a listen. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, look, I was a massive King Crimson fan, still am. Robert Fripp is one of the most incredible guitarists out there and all of the massive things that he's been involved with over the years, working with people like David Bowie and, you know, he is the face of King Crimson. I heard that Fripp was playing a, a concert in London at the uh, Queen Elizabeth Hall, I think it was, um, and it was doing a free show in the foyer of that venue. And uh, uh, it was happening the next day. So anyway, I got, got down there nice and early and managed to get myself a front row seat. And Fripp was doing his soundscape thing, which is where he, he plays to tapes and, and things like that. Um, King Crimson fans will probably be familiar with the term Frippatronics, which is something he developed by playing to tapes effectively. And um, so I turned up and I'm sitting in the front row seat, uh, you know, a few feet away from, from him. And I'm thinking to myself, my oh God, my mates back home would not believe that I'm sitting right in front of Robert Fripp right now. They are going to absolutely lose the plot when I tell them this. And I thought to myself, well, I have to take a photo of him to prove that I was there. Now, back in the day, I was, I was 20 years old. So I was perhaps a little bit more naive to what I am now. And I had no idea about Robert Fripp's reputation and his dislike of cameras. So, and to be fair, I had seen a couple of other people taking the odd snap around me at the time. They were quite discreet about it, but I had seen it. So I thought, okay, now's my chance. He'd been playing for a couple of hours by this point. 
And I thought, okay, now's my time to, to snap a shot. Now the camera I had with me, this was way before digital cameras or iPhones or anything. I wasn't overly familiar with it. And I had thought I had turned the flash off. <laughs> Unfortunately, I hadn't. So the flash goes off and Fripp's sitting right in front of me playing away and the flash goes off and he just stops playing and looks at me. And I thought, okay, I've entered the twilight zone now. <laughs> and I thought, what's happening here? He's not playing and he's looking at me. And he just said to me, he looked me in the eye and he said, why? And I thought, he can't be talking to me. Surely not. Maybe it's someone else behind me he's talking to. And he said it again. He said, why? And I had no idea what to do at that point. So I just shrugged my shoulders and I said, sorry. <laughs> and he disapprovingly shook his head, put his guitar down and casually walked off the stage. And I thought, oh my God, this cannot be happening to me. <laughs> at this point, I was starting to get some uh, subtle abuse from the audience members behind me. And... Um, I had no idea what to do. I, was turn I must have turned a bright shade of red because I could feel my face getting hotter and hotter. And, but I was determined to just sit there and um, I thought, I'm going to sit this out and see where it goes. And eventually I could see uh, Fripp had come back out onto the stage and he was talking to a security guard. And I thought, mm, okay, if I want to keep my camera, I think now's the time I better get out of here. So I stood up in front of a few hundred people sitting in the foyer of that hall and just casually walked around the whole audience hearing sniggers and various forms of abuse being hurled at me and walked off, got out the door and bolted as fast as I could. <laughs> and that story has stayed with me forever. It's, um, it's, I, I imagine, Matt, do you still wake up sometimes in the middle of the night? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Smash. I was traumatized by it. Um, Look, I, I had no idea about his reputation and, and it's since, you know, it's since become a, quite a famous thing with him. You know, um, lots of people have uh, talked about their experiences in taking his photo. And I think King Crimson even sold T-shirts for a while with cameras with the red uh, circle and the line going through it. <laughs> Uh, that is brilliant. That definitely ranks up there. I think it's fair to say, Paul, with the train wrecks that the players themselves have given us. Absolutely. Brilliant story. Yes. <laughs> I, I can just picture it, Matt. <laughs> he, did, he did actually release a live album of that performance. And I, of course, I had to buy it, but there was no mention of the performance being disrupted. So uh, I got away with that one. <laughs> I'm great. sure he's never forgot. No, no, he'd remember that. Um, just a, two quick ones in to, to finish up, Matt. So um, any keyboard players in the prog rock scene of more recent times you'd recommend our listeners check and viewers check out? Yeah. Um, so there's probably, a, well, there's a handful of ones that I'd mention uh, from more recent music. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with Jordan Rudess, keyboard player with Dream Theatre. He's yep. had a long career uh, playing with Dixie Dregs and as a solo artist and things like that. He is just an amazing player. He went to Juilliard. He's, what he can't play isn't worth playing. Um, he's become really the new Keith Emerson. He's the new virtuoso mm. player. Um, Richard Barbieri is another amazing player that I particularly love who he's been around for years. He used to be in a eighties sort of art rock band called Japan. Uh, and he went on to uh, play in Porcupine Tree who have become one of the more important prog mm. bands uh, from the, the nineties onwards. 
uh, and he's still playing with them now, uh, as well as doing his own solo stuff. He, he plays a lot with atmospheres and textures rather than being a virtuoso player, but he adds so much to the music from, from that perspective. Uh, so really tasty player. Um, there's another one that's a, a bit left of center that I'll mention, a Swedish guy named Richard uh, Schoblom, I think you pronounce his name. Um, he had a band called Beardfish, uh, which morphed into a band called Gungfly, and he also plays in Big Big Train. Um, he's very much from the sort of Tony Banks school uh, of playing and uh, great organ player uh, as well as synth player and songwriter, and uh, he's just doing some amazing stuff. Um, if I can, I'd like to just throw out some, some mentions to a few friends mm -hmm. of mine in the prog genre who your listeners uh, may not have heard of, but are definitely worth checking out. Um, Clive Nolan, who's someone that you've had on the show before, uh, who plays with Arena and Pendragon, amongst many others. Uh, great player. Uh, Richard West from a band called Threshold, who are England's uh, progressive metal um, band that have been around for many, many years now. I did a lot of touring with them. Richard's a great player. Uh, Neil Durant uh, plays with a band called IQ. Uh, again, an amazing band who I've been a massive fan of for many, many years. Um, uh, who else could I say? John Young, who's uh, a great player. He's got a band called Life Signs, which uh, he's an English player. He plays a lot with Bonnie Tyler as uh, her sideman, but he's played with people like Scorpions. Um, Matt, Matt, you'll be Lifeline. pleased to know you'll be pleased to know John Young's on standby to speak with us. He's one that I've mm. I've got to get back to. Oh, good, good, excellent. Yeah, great, uh, great player. So yeah, there's a few names that your listeners may not have uh, heard of, but definitely worth checking out. Great stuff. And then the very last one, Matt, is uh, when we interview players, we ask about their five Desert Island discs. So I think it's very appropriate to talk about your five Desert Island prog discs. Well, I'd probably take everything that you see behind me with me to the Desert Island, um, <laughs> but I think the island might sink. So <laughs> I was going to ask whether they were books or CDs. So there's CDs. CDs and vinyl. Uh, yeah, there, wow. Yeah. Um, most prog fans are avid collectors. Unfortunately, I've got that gene too. So <laughs> if I had to pick five though, um, I'm definitely going to go with The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway by Genesis. One of my all-time favourite albums ever. Um, there's got to be a Rush album in there because I'm a massive Rush fan. So I'm, my favourite Rush album changes daily, but given it's a prog show, I'm going to go with Hemispheres, probably their most proggiest effort. Mm -hmm. uh, Close to the Edge by Yes. I think it's a masterpiece. You can't go past it. Um, I sing in a Floyd band, so I have to choose a, a Pink Floyd album. Uh, and it's got to be Wish You Were Here, I think. Um, Dark Side's amazing. It's a brilliant album. But I think Wish You Were Here, for me, it's just got the edge. It just, there's something else to that album that really captures my attention. So, yeah, going to go with that one. And the last one is... Um, the only album that's not from the 70s uh, that I'm just going to throw in there is a bit of a left turn, uh, Discipline by King Crimson. Um, th there's no keyboards on that album, unfortunately, but um, uh, apart from guitar synth, but uh, it's, it's an incredible album. And if you like things like early 80s, David Bowie and Talking Heads, I think there's a lot to uh, find of interest in that album. It's, there's nothing else that sounds like that album. Brilliant. Great five picks. So Matt, can't thank you enough again um, for, for joining us. Re really, really appreciate it. Um, thank you. And um, 
yeah, look, I'm sure uh, you know, John Young or whoever it is will be definitely having you back um, for different chats in the future, but really appreciate you delving into this, this a little bit deeper. Thanks so much, guys. Normally people fall asleep or they start crying when I go on about this sort of stuff, but <laughs> you guys have been very polite. It's been awesome to have you on the show, Matt, and I've learned plenty, as I always do, when you talk about music. So thank you for being so generous with your time. Thanks so much. Okay, put your hand up if you're now a prog rock fan. Paul? Oh, definitely. Two hands up. (laughs) Two hands up. And look, there there is some really cool stuff there I want to check out. I, I alluded to in that interview what a heathen I am in respect to pro rock, but I, I mean, I love Pink Floyd. Uh, and it's interesting how people think of different bands in different ways. I've never thought of, as silly as it sounds, Pink Floyd as a prog rock band. I mean, they obviously are, particularly, you know, particular albums, but um, there's a whole bunch of other stuff there I'm dying to go in and have a, have a bit more of a listen to. So, yeah, thank you again, Matt, for that. That was brilliant. Um, so there's the end of our first video podcast. Paul, did we survive? Well, I, I think we did. I guess uh, uh, people who view us can, can be the ultimate yes. judge of, of whether or not we did a good job. But look, it was certainly fun and it was great to, to see the guest's smiling face while he was chatting. And of course, your handsome visage as well, David. <laughs> Don't start talking up handsomeness, please, for the love of God. <laughs> um, so, yes, we'd love to hear your comments, what you did, didn't like, because that's what this is all about. I mean, the only reason we do it is for you and our, our listenership and now hopefully viewership has re- risen significantly over 2021. So we are very keen to get your feedback and we're, we're always keen to do better. Um, so if you'd like to keep in touch, you can do so via a few means. So our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. Um, we're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash keyboard chronicles and on Twitter at the keyboard chr1. As always, good old fashioned email, then editor at keyboardchronicles.com. Sounds fancy, just comes to me. If you'd like to become an official supporter, as we mentioned, we do have a Patreon account and that's at patreon.com forward slash keyboard chronicles. Whereas for as little as $2 a month, you can, you can make a real difference to us growing and going from strength to strength. Paul, thanks as always. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's an absolute pleasure. Great fun. Um, and um, thank you everyone out there for watching and listening. And we hope to see you back here next episode. 